This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the best night of the week. I am fired up to be with you guys tonight. God's Word is so beautiful and intricate. It is a tapestry woven together into a frame, and the center and the purpose and the focus of that frame is Jesus Christ. And the fact that I get to talk about God's Word tonight, that I get to do this for a living, it's just to study God's Word and share it, is like the coolest job ever. And we're here for one purpose and one purpose only. Are you ready for this, Elevate? Why are we here? Elevate! Jesus! Pretty good, pretty good. Give me one more. Elevate! Jesus! Excellent. Well, I want to just dive right in. I'm looking forward to your e-groups tonight as you hash this out deeper, but I've been excited to share this with you all week. We're studying through the book of Matthew, and Matthew has three purposes that he's trying to convey. Number one, Jesus is king, and he's the king that surpasses David. Number two, Jesus has come to break the curse of sin and death. And number three, his kingdom is for anyone who calls on him as Lord. Last week, Elijah talked about how King Jesus has diagnosed the nation of Israel. He took a pulse and he declared Israel as dead in their sins. And he is the only one that can bring them back to life. Tonight, we're going to see that there is a coup an overthrow being planned against King Jesus. And it's incredible because those that are coming against them are very sure that they have Jesus against the ropes and they are missing it entirely, the reason that he has come. Because Jesus' war is not against his detractors. His war is against death itself, against sin itself. And it's going to be the carrying out of his enemy's plan where he will come into victory and be crowned king. What a God we serve. He has come to throw, overthrow sin and death. Worship comes in a lot of different forms. It can come through music. It can come through hearing God's word. It can come through repentance. Worship comes through endurance and suffering. Worship can come through things that we enjoy doing. Our painting, using the gifts that God has given us. Worship comes through every form of our life that is giving glory to him. And through him, every form of our life can give glory. And one of the most powerful forms of worship is what different people call communion the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, the Last Supper. Because the Last Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, is a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a picture of his victory. And that's what we're going to study tonight. I'm going to read through our text in Matthew, and then we're going to go back and break it down. And there are some things that I never knew before that I just can't wait to share with you. I just want to skip forward to get to them because they're so cool. Matthew 26, I think we have it up. We're going to start in verse 1. And yes, there it is. I'm sorry we don't have the underlines. I ran out of time. 
My fault. But let's start in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he is talking about the end of the age. He's prophesying what is to come in the future. When he has finished all of these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, we can't do it during the feast, or there'll be an uproar among the people. The tension is building. The water is heated to a boil. They have decided what their intentions are, and they're looking for any way they can to kill the king. Let's jump to verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where would you have us prepare to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time's at hand and I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared for the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's a traitor in the camp. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it me? And he answered, It is he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me who will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many in the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit again of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." Woo! There's a lot going on. Some people argue that Jesus is the whole picture of God. He is the complete revelation of what God has given us. And it is a lie. Because how would we know who Jesus was and that he was God unless everything that he did and said was a fulfillment of the prophecies that God had already spoken and delivered through the Old Testament. God's word, which Jesus fulfilled, is the complete prophecy of who God is. And the Old Testament is laced with types, with shadows, with parables, with prophecies, and all of them culminate into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How would we know who God was that Jesus is pointing at unless we have the Old Testament? So as we go through here, we're going to see that throughout all of Matthew and throughout all of the Old Testament, there are all of these roads and all of them are stretching forward and they all converge at one point. And we have gotten to the point in Matthew where the water has been heated to a boil and everything that has been prophesied, every type of the Old Testament, 
all of the shadows are now going to take shape right here. And so this is no small conversation that we're jumping into tonight. And we're only going to scratch the surface of how complex and how beautiful this is. Elijah once told me that anytime you take scripture and you, like a wet rag and you wring it, you wring a, wring a wet rag and you get a lake. And that is what's happening tonight. And we're going to squeeze these scriptures just a little bit and you're going to see some beautiful content. But there's so many layers happening here and I hope that I can only do justice to it. So let's start at the beginning. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, so those sayings are everything that he talked about, about his predictions of what is to come, and everything from this point forward is all pointed at the cross. His anointing at Bethany by Mary, his betrayal by Judas, his denial by Peter, the dinner that they're going to have in the upper room, his court case where he will be declared, the sham court case in the middle of the night where he'll be declared guilty. Everything is now sliding towards the cross. Everything is pushing towards his death and resurrection. Verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. This is Jesus talking. And the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Jesus couldn't be clearer. He's not only predicting his death, he's saying exactly when it'll happen and how it'll happen and by who it's going to happen. And he uses this term, son of man. We don't have time to dig into it. But if you go to the book of Daniel, the son of man is the character that they were looking for and called the Messiah. And the son of man had prophecies around him. The son of man was called the ancient of days, meaning he was God in flesh. The son of man would be given dominion over all the earth. The son of man would have a kingdom that would be everlasting. And he would be killed at the end of 69 weeks of years. 69 times 7, if you do the math and you follow the Jewish calendar, it lands on the year Jesus would die. And this was prophesied 500 years ago. This was all around the Son of Man whose life would end when that calendar ran out. And his life would be put an end forever to the Jewish sacrifices. This is how they understood the Son of Man. This is who Jesus is referring to himself as. So the chief priests are gathered, the elders of the people, and they get together and they're forming this plot, but they have a problem. They know what they want to do. They want to kill Jesus. They know that they have to try to pull this off at a time that's in secret or else the people that follow Jesus are going to rise up and have a revolution. So they need an insider. And lo and behold, verse 14 says, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' inner circle, Judas. Instead of the chief priests having to find a traitor, the traitor comes to them and says, what do you give me? I'm, I'm ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, I've been following him, but he's going to go down. How much would you give me for it? This is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. This is God's ordained will that through what they think is a victory, Jesus will have his victory. And Judas comes to them. What would you give me? To single out Jesus, to tell you when the perfect time in secret is. What would you give me? And they promise him 30 pieces of silver. Now for us to understand why this is significant, we're going to have to go to the Old Testament. And I'm going to be 
brief, but lean in. This is really interesting. Way back in Exodus, when God is laying down the law, he sets up this scenario. He says, what if your ox is in somebody else's yard and with its horns or with its hooves tramples or gores somebody else's servant to death? How do you repay them for the loss of their servant? And this Old Testament law says, well, you would pay the owner of that servant 30 pieces of silver. And it's actually a really low amount. So what is the cost of the life is 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you fast forward a little bit, the Israelites have been taken to Babylon out of their sin and punishment, and they've come back and they've rebuilt the temple. And they're approaching what's going to be 400 years of silence where God will stop speaking to them. And that silence will eventually be broken by John the Baptist and Jesus. But for 400 years, from where they're leaving off, from the prophet Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi, they're giving God's last words before this silence. And the silence is coming about because the people, even coming back from punishment, are still living in sin. And God is speaking to Zechariah, and he's diagnosing the heart of Israel. And he tells Zechariah, in Zechariah 11, go look it up later, interesting story. Most people avoid Zechariah because it's full of strange imagery. But he tells Zechariah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give all of Israel a word picture. I want you to personally step out of the role of prophet for a little while, and I want you to go and take this really, really low job as a shepherd. But not a shepherd over any flock, You're going to be a shepherd over a flock of sheep that are already set up to be slaughtered. You're going to take care of them before their time to be be slaughtered for meat or whatever they used sheep for back then. So Zechariah takes over this flock. And the first thing he finds is that there are three shepherds over the flock and they're evil, wicked shepherds that are abusing the sheep. So immediately, Zechariah gets rid of them. It uses the word destroys. I destroyed them. And I'm like, what does that mean? Is he killing people? This is crazy. So he gets rid of these three shepherds that are harming the sheep. But the sheep have already been so influenced by the shepherds that the sheep themselves hate Zechariah. The sheep themselves resist him and turn on him because they were already influenced by those wicked shepherds. So Zechariah is like, fine, if the sheep themselves are resisting me, then I will turn them over to the sheep traders that are coming to buy them from me to go off to their slaughter. So the sheep traders show up, and they say, okay, we're here for our sheep. And Zechariah says, fine, take them. But sheep traders, what will you give me for my wages for the time that I cared lovingly for these terrible sheep? What will you give me? Pay me a fair price. And the sheep traders say, we will give you 30 pieces of silver. And it's an insulting amount. It's meant to insult Zechariah. Because Zechariah was the last hope for these sheep before they were doomed. He was the last loving shepherd for these sheep. And when they rejected Zechariah, they were turned over to their doom, to their destiny. And what was the value of Zechariah's love for the sheep? It was a shameful, pitiful amount. 
And what's happening here is that God is saying, I'm going to send my good shepherd. And he's going to come to the flock of Israel. And the flock of Israel right now are under wicked leaders. Elijah talked about them last week. They're under wicked leaders, and the wicked leaders are actually leading them astray. And even though Jesus may get rid of, defeat, dismiss wicked leaders, their influence has been so infectious that Israel themselves are now corrupt, and they're going to despise the loving good shepherd. They're going to despise the one sent to be their last source of hope. And when they reject him, they'll be turned over to their destiny, which will be destruction. And so they promise Judas 30 pieces of silver. I want you to make this connection because this is beautiful and crazy. Whenever the sheep herders gave 30 pieces of silver to Zechariah, it was shameful for how little they paid him. And God told Zechariah to, res- to reject their payment. But he wouldn't just give the silver back to the sheep traders. He would take the silver and he went to the temple and he threw it into the temple to be given to the potter who was working there. And if you fast forward in the story of Matthew, we know what happens to Judas. He takes his 30 pieces of silver, but he regrets what he did. And he goes back to the temple and says, this money is money of blood. I can't keep it. And he throws it into the temple at the feet of the priests. But the priests recognize it's blood money, so they can't keep it. And they take the money and they give it to a potter to buy that potter's field, the field where Judas would hang himself. Now, what's significant in both stories, yes, the 30 pieces of silver. Yes, the potter is in both stories. Yes, there is a betrayal. But what's significant in both stories is the temple. Because the temple should have been the place that exalted God. It was the place of purification, the place of his presence, the place where the priests are the connection between the people and God's redemption. And it's the, it's the temple that receives the blood money in both stories. Judas was an agent, a member of, of the rejecting flock, but it was the temple who betrayed Jesus. It was the house of God who valued the great and loving shepherd at 30 pieces of silver. The significance that they placed on the king of all of creation was the value of a slave. Philippians 2.7, that Jesus would take on human flesh and make himself a slave. It was the very people and place of his worship who betrayed him, the Lord of the universe. 30 pieces of silver is not a random number. It is meant to direct our attention to Zechariah, where the sheep rejected the shepherd and were turned over to their destiny to be slaughtered, where the blood money was terribly, shamefully, pitifully 30 pieces because the people that should have valued God the highest put the lowest value on him. And these same people 
the people of the temple, the people of Israel, the sheep that rejected a mere hours from now will be screaming towards the shepherd, crucify him, crucify him and deliver him to the cross. That is the spiritual state of Israel. That is the spiritual state that Matthew is saying the king has come and he has come to rescue them from that death, from that rebellion, from that curse. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where have you a place for us to eat the Passover? Uh, Passover. So he sends them in. They set up this upper room. And let's jump to verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. They're celebrating this holiday of Passover. And if you don't know much about it, it comes from the book of Exodus. And it celebrates whenever all of Israel were enslaved to Egypt. And God sent Moses to set the people free. And Moses again went again and again and again to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh rejected Moses and said, no, I'm not going to let the people free. They're my slaves. And so finally God pushed the boundary so far that Pharaoh would have to let them go. God brought these plagues, frogs, and blackening out the sun, and diseases, and all kinds of stuff. But again and again, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And finally, God said this, I am going to push Pharaoh's hand so hard, he'll have to. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a plague that kills the firstborn in every house. I myself will come through the land and the firstborn of every house will die. Every one of them. Of the animals and of the people. But anyone who is obedient, anyone who is my people and is obedient, I will pass over their home and they will be safe. What they are to do is to find a perfect spotless lamb. They are to take that lamb and kill it. Drain some of the blood and paint the blood over their door and then roast that lamb and eat it as a meal without breaking any of the bones. And then in the middle of the night, as God's judging presence will come through Egypt, Egypt that refused to let his people free, Egypt that had enslaved his people, as he comes through Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorposts and recognize his people and would pass over that home. And in the middle of the night, with a great outcry of death, Pharaoh called Moses and said, get you and your people out. And they left in the middle of the night quickly, escaping slavery, emancipated from a life of imprisonment in Egypt. And so they celebrated every year, and they celebrated by eating bread without, without yeast, and they celebrated by roasting a lamb. And through these great, great rituals that they would go through every year. And I want to walk through it very quickly, but you're going to see how, how they celebrated lined up with our story. The first thing that they would do is they would open up with a blessing. And they would serve four cups of wine. It was highly diluted wine because they didn't want to defile themselves with drunkenness. So they would dilute it with water. But they would serve four cups of wine. And each cup of wine represented one of God's promises to his people in Exodus 6, 6-7. through The first one represented, I will bring you out under the burdens of Egypt. 
I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. And I will take you to be my people. I'll make you a nation. So I'm going to, I'm going to transpose you from, from Egypt to a new land. I'm going to set you free from slavery. I'm going to pay the price to have you to be mine. And I'm going to make you a nation. Those are the four cups of wine. So they would open up with this blessing in the first cup of wine. That's the first thing they would do. Then they would have this ritual hand washing. Then the second, second cup of wine is poured and they would read the Exodus story. They would have this dip of bitter herbs and it represented the bitterness of slavery and they would dip the bread without yeast, the matzah bread, into this bitter herbs to eat it. Then they would eat the roasted lamb and then they would close with a third cup of wine and singing songs. Songs that came from Psalms 113 through 118. All right, now, if you can hold some of that in the back of your mind, hang in there because it's about to get interesting. So it begins with this blessing. And the blessing was quoted from Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and it's how God rested on the seventh day. Then they would do this ritual hand washing, and it meant that they had to be purified before God. And it was during this time, this ritual hand washing, that Jesus would take it to another level. He would wrap a towel around his waist, and instead of washing hands, he would bring a basin of water and kneel at their feet. And he would wash their feet. The lowest job, the job of a slave. And he would wash their feet as a servant, as a slave, as a love to them. Then they would get the second cup of wine and here they would tell the Exodus story and kids would ask questions. Why is this night different than every other night? And they would answer these questions about the Exodus. Then finally they would come to the bitter herbs that represented the bitterness of slavery and they would dip their unleavened bread into the bitter herbs. And it would have been here that Jesus quotes, verse 21, as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. They began to say to him, it's not I. And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish of bitter herbs will betray me. So Jesus has predicted his death four times now. And Jesus drops this bomb on him. And we know from John that the disciples ultimately didn't even hear Jesus' response. Right now, Jesus is sitting with Judas on his left and John on his right. His betrayer is right there next to him, eating with him. Why does he use the dipping of bread as the sign of who the traitor was. And we know from John that the disciples didn't overhear everything. Whenever Jesus dismisses Judas and he gets up to go, the disciples think that he's just off to go buy stuff for the Passover or give money to the poor or something. So right now it's like John and Judas are actually hearing this conversation. They're sorrowful and they say to one another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, It is he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me who will betray me. And it's interesting because they would have trusted Judas. They trusted him with the money. And having a meal together with someone was considered a very intimate act. You have a meal with your friends, making Judas all the more treacherous. 
Judas is already has the money clanking in his pocket, and he's sitting next to Jesus having a meal with him, dipping in the same bowl with him. And sitting closest to him. But what's going on here? Why is Jesus pointing out Judas in this way? Y'all. Remember how Matthew's first point is that Jesus is the new David? It's because what's going on here is a direct quote from David's psalm. And it's Psalm 41, 9 through 10. We'll read it in a minute. But I wanted you to know the story of what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm. As David got older, his own son would want to take his kingship and want to take his throne. So his son revolted against him and drove David out of his own palace, out of his own house, out into the wilderness. And it was painfully similar to whenever David was on the run from Saul. And David had two friends in the story. His friend Hushai and also his friend Ahithophel. Boy, I practiced that word. Ahithophel. And you have two friends that are close to David in the story. Ahithophel was actually David's court counselor. This is the person David would turn to for counsel. And there was Hushai. Now David has been run out of his own home and he's living in exile. He's a fugitive. Him and a few people that supported him. And his own son is hunting him. And Hushai comes and finds David and says, David. And he comes with him with, to him with his clothes ripped and he has ashes on his head. He's in mourning. He says, David, how can I serve you? And you can look this up. Follow the story. It's in 2 Samuel 16 and 17. David, how can I serve you? I'll do anything for you. And David says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back. And I want you to be my spy. I want you to go and tell Absalom, my son, that you want to serve him in the same way you served me. And whatever information you learn, tell the priest at the temple, and I will drop by and learn whatever information that you have passed on to them. So you have Hushai, who is loyal to David. But then you have, oh man, I'm going to say it wrong if I don't look at it, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, who David had trusted up until this point, does the opposite. Ahithophel goes to Absalom and says, I serve you, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to have David killed for you. And Ahithophel gives Absalom advice of how to shame David, about to keep him on the run, and even proposes a plot to murder him. And it was with this knowledge of Ahithophel's betrayal, his friend and his counselor's betrayal, that David writes Psalm 41. And I want to read just verses 9 and 10. This is what David wrote. Even my close friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. There's something significant about the man sitting at the, at the left hand of Jesus, who is eating bread with him. This is all part of God's plan. Verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. And in John 13, Jesus takes the bread and says, it's the person that I hand the bread to. 
And he hands it to Judas. Judas, you are my Ahithophel. Because Jesus is the new and greater David. And David's life is a foreshadowing of Jesus' life. Verse 25, Jesus, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, and Jesus says to him, You have said so. Judas is just feigning concern. Everyone else is saying, is it I, is it I? And he's like, uh, is it I? He's trying to fit in, but he already knows what he's going to do. And Judas leaves. So Jesus washed Judas's feet. I find that really interesting. But he leaves. And after he's left, the stage is set. The chief priests and the elders now have their a double agent, and Judas is helping them. They're ready to assassinate Jesus. The scales are tipped against him. And it seems like Jesus is going to be overthrown tonight. But Jesus has never been here to defeat his detractors. They're caught up with a concern about their little tiny world, but Jesus is here for something far greater. He's come to overthrow sin and death itself and to set his citizens free. And so the next step of the meal was the main part. They would eat the roasted lamb, but they would make sure not to break its bones, which was a foreshadowing that Jesus would go through the whole passion and none of his bones would be broken, which is prophesied in Psalms. Now, as they're eating, verse 26, they're celebrating this supper. They who were declared spiritually dead without Christ, without Jesus, And he is going to become that sacrificial lamb. This Passover lamb that they are remembering, that they're celebrating, Jesus is going to fulfill and supersede that. Because it's going to be the blood of Jesus that will be symbolically painted over his believers. That when God comes and the flock is going to be slaughtered for their rejection of him, it will be under Jesus' blood that God will see his people. Jesus would die for his people. Those who deserve sin and death, we are all sinners, and the wages of sin is that death, and Jesus would pay the price for that death by receiving the full wrath of God that we deserved so that we could be saved. They're eating a meal surrounding this lamb, and this lamb is the very one that represents Jesus. They'll no longer look back on the lamb as a symbol of redemption, but Jesus is now the lamb of redemption. And then he takes the bread, and after blessing it, this is verse 26, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. And bread is very significant to Jesus. Because again, everything stands in the Old Testament. Remember after Moses led the people out, that great Passover that terrible plague, Pharaoh runs them out of the country and they go out in the wilderness, but they have very little to eat. And they go to God and say, God, we're hungry. How will you feed us? There's two million of us. What are we going to do? We can't eat rocks. And God says, watch what I can do. And the next morning they wake up and something that they called, what is it? Manna, which was bread from heaven, was all over the ground and it was enough to feed two million people every day for 40 years as long as they were in the wilderness. God provided bread 
for them. God is the provider for his people in need. And right now, they are at their direst need. Whether they, it, they, whether they have a meal or not doesn't matter. But if they die in their sins, they die and go to hell. God sees their need, and he is the God who is providing bread for them. And so Jesus holds up the bread and says, This is my body, given for you. Your God, who is your provider, I've come to provide for you. Later, the leader received, recites another series of blessings, and they pass around the third cup. And it would have been at this cup that Jesus read, says this. Verse 7, And Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant, which was given for you. This is the third cup of the night. Remember, there was four cups. The first one represented that they were being taken out to someplace else. The second one represented they were being set free from slavery. For them, set free from slavery, from sin. And the third one was the cup of redemption, that God would pay the price to save his people. And Jesus holds up the cup of redemption and says, this is the blood of the covenant. It represents my blood. You see, because after Israel had been brought out of Egypt from the Passover, after they had been hungry and God had given them bread, God brought them to a mountain. And God made a promise to his people and said, I will make you my people and I will take care of you and I will purify your sins. Will you be mine? Will you make me your God? And the people say, yes, we do. You are our God. And with this covenant, they killed a lamb and they used his blood to, to symbolize the bloodshed. They sealed this covenant with blood that God would be their people and he would forgive their sins and the people would make him and him only their God. And Jesus holds up the cup. You see, because Jeremiah said that there's going to be a new covenant and it's not going to be a covenant that's written on stone. It's not going to be a covenant in an animal's blood. It's going to be a covenant that's written on hearts. It's going to be a a covenant that goes internal and it's going to finally purify sin permanently. And Jesus holds up the blood or the cup and says, this is my blood. No longer is it the blood of animals or of a lamb. No, my blood is going to seal the covenant between you and God permanently to take away sin, permanently to be his people, permanently that you are committed to be, to make him your God. This is that covenant in my blood. So we have three elements. We have the Passover lamb, the substitute. We have the bread, God's provision, and we have the blood, or the wine, which represents the blood of the new covenant. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink of it again. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Which means that not only does it remind us of Jesus' blood at the cross shed for us, it's also a promise that he's going to come again that we're going to celebrate this meal again with him. And so not only is what happened at the cross a fulfillment of all the prophecy of the Old Testament, but he's saying, I've got another one. And I will be as true to the second as I was to the first. In the same way I'm forgiving your sins through the cross, you are going to see me again, and we're going to have this meal together in eternity.
And finally, they would sing psalms. Psalms 113 through 118. Verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, that's the point in the ceremony, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what do we see here? That Jesus is the king who surpasses David. David. Another cool connection. He is the king who came to break the curse of sin and death. And he is the king who offers entrance into his kingdom. Redemption to anyone who comes to him. I want to read Psalm. This is how they would have closed. This is what Jesus would have sang after communion, hours before his betrayal. Psalm 118, 17 through 25. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of Yahweh. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Listen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This day, the day of Jesus' death, is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And it ends, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is what Jesus sang before he would go to his death. The cornerstone, which was rejected, would become the chief cornerstone. That he would not die. The Lord would not deliver him entirely to death. I love the verse that says that death could not hold him. And there are three purposes of communion. There are three purposes that we celebrate. We're going to do this tonight. If you're not comfortable with it, fine. That's totally cool. But this is a way that, that believers worship. It's one of the many ways, but it's an important way. And we worship com- through communion for three reasons. And the first one is because it is an external sign of an internal grace. Every time that we take communion together, we are reminded of what God has done in our hearts and doing in our hearts continuously, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's an external sign of the grace that God has given us and given us on the inside. Number two, it unifies the church of God. Did you know that believers in every language around the world, whatever songs they sing, Whatever denomination they are, we all worship at least in one way. And it's through the Eucharist. It's through communion, through celebrating the Lord's Supper. Every believer across the planet for the last 2,000 years, whether people were doing it in graveyards to get away from people trying to kill them, or whether people are doing it dancing with African music in the background from... Jesus' life to now, in every language, on every continent, we are all united because we worship in this way. That table that Jesus was sitting at stretches through time for all of us to sit at. When he's saying to remember me, he's saying, sit at the table with me. Let's look towards the death of victory and victory over death. And this table stretches through time all the way into eternity where we will celebrate with Jesus again at that same table with every believer that has ever lived. This unites the body of Jesus. It unites his church, his kingdom, 
So it's an external sign of an internal grace. It unifies his church. And three, it tells the story of salvation. We can always ask the question, why did Jesus need to die? Because of sin. Oh man, I'm digressing, but boy, I think this is important. We take sin and we say, this is a sin, and this is a sin, and this is a sin, and this is a sin. We, we see sin at different levels, right? And probably a lot of us have probably thought, I wonder why things were so bad. Why was judgment so strict just because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate some fruit? Let me give you two answers to that. Number one, they disobeyed God with one time, and in one generation or less, the first murder happened, and it was between brothers. We like to say, this is a small sin and this is a big sin, and yet all sin is an opening of the floodgates to complete wickedness and separation from the God of goodness. And if you think there's such thing as a little sin, think of the cost that it took to redeem that sin. You might say, it's just a lie. You might say, This was just a small thing to steal. It's just gossip. It's just whatever you think a small sin is. And yet it took the death of Jesus. It took God's son sacrificed to redeem that sin. All sin is infinitely rebellious against God. So why did Jesus have to die? You begin with that question and then... You look at the cross through this simple celebration of bread and wine. And you tell the story of how Jesus was God's provision to be our substitute to form the new covenant in his blood so that we can be with life himself, love himself. Because if God is the God of life and we reject life through sin, then where are we left? We're left with only death. And so this is a story of what Jesus did for us. It's an external sign of an internal grace. It unifies God's church, and it tells the story of salvation. In review, just when the religious leaders thought that they had gotten Jesus beaten, they were actually participating in God's plan for his victory. Judas, echoing the story of David, has become part of the plot against Jesus, and the value of King Jesus has been placed at 30 pieces of silver. King Jesus will overthrow enemies far greater than just his adversaries. He'll overthrow death itself. The Passover lamb represents Jesus' substitution for our sin on the cross. The bread represents Jesus's, God's provision for us. And the wine represents Jesus' blood of the new covenant that he makes with his people. And death will set, Jesus' death will set his citizens free and defeat sin once and for all. Before we do this, I want to read what Paul wrote about it, and I hope it brings a reverence. Paul has just talked about the communion of Christ, and I'll read it. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-29. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On that night, when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do to remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And pay attention. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, examine herself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So if we're going to come and celebrate this, remembering something that is this sacred, this beautiful, this highly esteemed, we need to come with an attitude of repentance. And so while Miko is playing a little music, I want to take 60 seconds and just between you and the Lord, repent of any sin that's in your life right now. Repent of any rebellion. Give it over to the Lord. Ask to be washed clean in his blood. Let's spend a moment getting our hearts right before we do this. And while you guys are praying, I'd like to ask my helpers to come on up that volunteered. to forgive us of our sins. Even if our sin is as red as scarlet, you have made it white as snow. For all those who would cry out to you to be saved, you have said yes. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us of our sin. Purify us from the moment we were born to the moment right now. Lay over us your righteousness. I know we haven't done communion as a youth group in a while. We were still in the lighthouse the last time we did this. But this is the way we're going to do it. At your own volition, at a time that you think that you want to come on up, what you'll do is you'll come on down and you'll tear a little piece of bread off from one side and you'll just dip it into the grape juice. it's very simple 
but we come with the heart of remembering the cost of the meal. That we're united with all believers. And you know what? If this is strange or uncomfortable, don't even worry about it. No one's going to judge you for just hanging out. That's fine. If this is a way that you'd like to worship tonight, great. There's no pressure from me. There's no pressure from your leaders. We're not a youth group that's pressuring each other. But with Scripture in mind, having studied what this means, I do want to give us the opportunity to worship with it. And so while Miko just plays, um, why don't uh, why don't we stand up just to make it easier for people to get out if they want to. And just take a minute of prayer or two and let anybody by that's coming by you nicely. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do. So thank you, Lord, for the meal that you provided for us and the incredible symbolism behind it. Lord, may we do it in a worthy attitude. Amen. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other fount I know. Thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that in death you had victory over sin. 
And three days later, unlike every other prophet, unlike every other religion, unlike any other person who has ever lived, three days later, you resurrected yourself from the grave, taking control, taking complete authority over death itself. Thank you, Lord, that you took the keys of sin and death from Satan so that your people are free. Lord, we may face death without fear because for us, death is nothing more than a transition because if we are, if we are absent from the body, we are present in your arms and in your presence. Lord, we have no fear of death because Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. And if Jesus was resurrected, Lord, at your returning, so will your people. The citizens of your kingdom will follow in suit behind our king. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing tonight. Thank you, Lord, for everyone that had the endurance to make it all the way through this message. Lord, I pray that their minds were open, that they got excited that some of some of the amazingness of this just rubbed off on them. Lord, may we not count you as so cheap as 30 pieces of silver, but to see your price that you paid for us, that the only response that we can have is to give you our entire life back to be yours. The only way that we can repay you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you as their savior, that hasn't called out on you, repented from their sins, and given their life to you, that you would call them. Lord, let this symbol draw them, Lord. Open their eyes. Pull back the veil for them to see your incredible love. In this is love, not that we loved you, but you first loved us. Even before we knew you, you loved us and called us to be yours. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And we give you, Lord, all of who we are, and we give you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Woo, God is awesome. All right. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.